Lordy. So as I said, yesterday was a little bit of a heavy day. Um, I, I, I kind of want to, today's hopefully a better day. <laughs> I want to just brag on my son for a moment. He's not here um, to this morning. Uh, he goes to the school at Northwest Missouri State, and he um, stayed up there this weekend to go to church with uh, a kid on his, his track and cross-country team that he's been investing in and, and uh, discipling, and um, he asked Zach to baptize him this morning at church, so um, that's where he is. So really exciting, and just a great reminder to you college, high school kids that your impact um, in your friends' lives and coming along folks as they're just kind of struggling through trying to figure things out is so important. And um, man, just, just how valuable your presence is on those campuses and in those schools, being a light for Christ, even when it's difficult. Is, um, hopefully you'll have some rewarding moments like my son's getting to experience today. So, um, Well, during this season of Lent, the last uh, six or so weeks leading up to Easter, we've been kind of taking a look at Jesus' last and kind of final set of instructions to his disciples on the, the night that he was betrayed and arrested and he's um, reminding his friends of so many important things that they're going to need to keep in mind to try to navigate these next few hours that were coming, days that were coming, months, years. Because um, he knows that for them and for many others that were following Christ, that um, those times were going to be filled with um, chaos and um, um, trouble, overwhelming um, sense of despair maybe at times. And so Jesus is kind of trying to equip them and prepare them. Last week we got to hear Justin talk about um, almost kind of this final gift that Jesus gives to him where he says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, this, this advocate that's going to be intimate with you, that's going to be inside of you, that's going to help you have the power to kind of navigate this time without my physical presence here. So... Um, we all know that next Sunday is Easter, um, and this kind of in-between time between today, which is traditionally known as Palm Sunday, and Easter, we have this time on Good Friday where we remember um, you know, Christ uh, sacrificing for us on the cross. And um, so today, I kind of want to take a look at something um, that just kind of an idea that popped in my head, but we're going to... Popped in my head. That'd be the Holy Spirit. Uh, yeah. Um, anyways, uh, I digress. Uh, we're going to look at Jesus' final seven statements that he made on the cross that are recorded in the four different Gospels and kind of what the implications of those things are for us. Um, these were truly his final words as a man on this earth. And I think there's a lot in here for us to kind of notice and pay attention to um, because every word that he spoke on the cross would have been incredibly painful to get out. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But before we dive into that, I, I want to create a moment here of just um, opportunity um, for us to just kind of meditate on uh, that image of Christ on the cross for a moment. And um, I think it's really important, disturbing sometimes, but to really mentally picture that image. I read a book um, that was pretty challenging and just inspiring for me. Our staff went through a book um, last fall uh, about a pastor that, that he said that's just how he begins most of his mornings. Is he just kind of closes his eyes and just imagines Christ on the cross and just puts himself in the crowd. And just lets that kind of sink in for a moment 
as a way to kind of remind him what his life's about and who Christ is and what God calls us to do. And so we're just going to give you all about a minute or two of silence. We're going to have just this image up on the screen and just kind of ask you to be quiet and respect the folks around you. But just kind of soak this in quietly. So that was about a minute and a half. And, uh, I mean, Jesus was up on there for about six hours. Um, so you can imagine what that was like for his family and uh, people that cared about him to, to take in that scene. And that's probably a pretty tame rendition, honestly, of what he probably looked like at that point. But um, what kind of thoughts just went through your mind during that time? Anything kind of weigh on you or what were you what were you thinking as you were taking that in yeah john what does that pain and suffering yeah what else yeah yeah on cue, right? <laughs> yes. She said just having a child herself now, just thinking of Mary and, and what that was like to watch a, a child die. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, Haley. Guilty. Feel guilty? Yeah. Okay. Why? Um, just because, like, we, we live this great life that he gave us, and he had to take on all of the bad things that we do. Yeah. Yeah, just because he had to take on all the, the bad things that, that we've done, right? Yeah. Yeah, Justin. I mean, just, I feel like we downplayed sin a whole lot in our life. We don't think it's as bad. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, just even looking at that, like, sin has much graver consequences than we'll admit to. Yeah. So he says we kind of downplay our sin, and we think it's really not that bad. But when we see the consequence of what it costs God to pay for our sin, then we understand the depth of of how destructive it is. So, that's good. Um, 
You can take that down now. That's good. Um, so there's a traditional order that scholars kind of agree that these um, seven statements kind of happened in um, throughout these four Gospels. So we're going to kind of pull these in. And the statements that we'll go through, you'll notice, um, uh, are kind of divided um, almost evenly um, between uh, kind of showing Christ's humanity and his divinity, kind of both on display in the things that he said. And we're going to be covering a lot of uh, ground in Scripture today, so most of the verses are going to be up here uh, on the screen for you. Um, but I, as I mentioned before, and you saw, I mean, his body's severely beaten, and, um, you know, when you're hanging from nails, your, your shoulders are probably separated. Um, the weight of, of that is, is kind of crashing in on you. Um, they put the platform for your feet to stand on so that to breathe, you would have to push up and take a breath and come down. So you were constantly doing that for six hours or until you died, however long that took. So you can imagine how difficult it was to speak. And so these statements that we see are not long statements. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're pretty short things that he was able to get out. Um, so the first statement that we're going to look at is found in Luke twenty three thirty four. And it said this, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. I mean, what an unbelievable statement. And there are so many people that could have been, uh, he could have been thinking of in that moment. I mean, a lot of people kind of think just of like the Roman soldiers that just nailed him to the cross, but I think it's much broader than that. I think he was probably asking God's forgiveness for uh, the Jewish high priest Caiaphas who was um, charging him with blasphemy. I think he was probably asking for God to forgive Pilate, the Roman governor who kind of gave in to the crowd and sentenced Jesus to be crucified. I think he's probably asking God to forgive the crowd that was there mocking and jeering him as he hung on the cross dying for them. I think he was probably asking God to forgive the disciples who had betrayed and disowned and abandoned him in his moment of greatest need. And maybe most importantly, I think God, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive you and I here this morning for the ways in which we take his grace and love for granted, um, the way that we're filled with, with pride and envy and are so distracted by our, our selfish endeavors the way that we are worshiping the things of this world over God and focused on things that really aren't the most important things to his heart. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them all because they can't comprehend their foolishness. And the graciousness of Christ in this moment is astounding because he not only forgives us when we willingly disobey, but he also forgives us when we don't even know how foolish we are. And at the height of his physical suffering, love prevails. And it just kind of made me kind of ask myself the question and putting it before you guys too today is just how do we react when we're under duress and heartache? When we're wronged by other people, is forgiveness the first thing that comes to our lips? Or there are a lot of other emotions and words that might come first. You see, Jesus was living out 
what he'd been teaching his disciples all along, not only in what he said, but in his very act of dying, laying down his life that we might be forgiven our sins and paying this penalty that we couldn't pay in our own. But for years, he'd been walking around and he'd been teaching the disciples, hey, this is how you pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those you know, who have sinned against us. He said, love your enemies and pray for them. You ever done that? That's difficult. When they came to him and said, Lord, when a brother comes to us and asks for forgiveness, how many times should we forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven times. Forgiveness is a central tenet of the Christian faith, and Jesus makes this remarkably clear on the cross. And he challenges us to do the same in in really radical ways. So that's the first statement. There's a lot there. The second statement was a command that Jesus made in in reply to a criminal's request who was crucified next to Jesus. As you know, uh, kind of when you see the crucifixion, you usually see three crosses and legend had it that Jesus was in the middle and he was surrounded on either side by two criminals. One criminal the whole time was kind of taking on the, the attitude of the crowd and kind of mocking and insulting Jesus and you know, saying, well, if you're so powerful, get us down off of here and all this stuff. And the other criminal, on the other hand, was saying, hey, listen, we deserve to be here. <laughs> this guy is innocent. And then in this unbelievable statement, he turns to Jesus with his last breath and says, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And that's just such an unbelievable statement of faith because this was not a guy who had probably been following Jesus around for three years, listening to all of his teachings and watching his miracles. This was a guy who had a very brief encounter with Jesus in in the most troubling moment of Christ's life. But something in the way Jesus was operating made this guy think, this guy is the real deal. And he humbly lays out this request. And Jesus' second statement from the cross reveals a shocking depth of love and forgiveness. He turns to the criminals and he promises them this. In Luke 23, 43, he says, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And I want you to think about this for a minute, especially those of you that are, that are in ministry, but really in all walks of life. What are the implications of that act of mercy in the way that we minister to others? What, what, what implications does that statement have for us as we engage the lost? I can't hear who that's coming from. Who's talking? Oh, up there. There you go. In the rafters. Okay. It's never too late. Great. Good. It's never too late. Yeah. God meets you where you are. Excellent. Yeah. Hmm. Sometimes when people we think might be at their worst are some of the closest people to making that decision to, to change. Yeah. What else? There's some deep things here. <laughs> deep implications. Yeah. 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 
So there was nothing he could do to get off that cross and go feed the poor or, you know, anything. He couldn't do anything to, to earn that grace. And, and just notice the questions that Jesus doesn't ask him. He doesn't ask him, you know, are you sorry for what you've done or what exactly did you do? He doesn't ask him a bunch of theological questions about what do you believe about, you know, pre-rapture, you know, post-trib, pre... And he doesn't ask him any of that stuff that sometimes we get caught up in and think are so important. And it certainly wasn't based on his righteousness at all. But a few things are clear here. Is one is that Jesus had the authority to say it. He had the power to fulfill it, to make sure that that guy could be in paradise with him that day. And another thing that's clear is that before the book and the movie were even made, Jesus makes it clear that heaven is real. Okay? Didn't have, we didn't just find this out in the last 10 years. Okay? He's real. It's real. There is a place that we can be with him. And more than anything, though, I think this statement just challenges our understanding of how wide are the arms of Christ. How radical is his grace. And it's truly that by grace alone that we're saved, not by anything that we've done. So the next three statements we hear from Jesus all now kind of take us into a glimpse of his humanity. And... In the early church, this was a, a big thing because between Jesus' death and resurrection and the writings of the first gospels, there was about a 30-year or so span of time before his life was recorded. And in between that time, there was a lot of debate and a lot of people that were attacking the humanity of Jesus and whether he really was flesh and blood because they, they thought that flesh was equated with sin. And so why would the perfect God take on a body? And so they kind of thought he was more like a ghost. And so the gospel writers would have known that this was out there. And so when they wrote the gospels, you can see they are attacking that doctrine hard. And they are talking about his humanity in very clear terms. And we hear it here in their discussion on the cross as well. So the third statement was focused on Mary, the mother of Christ. And this was what he said. He said, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. So in this very human moment, Jesus' son makes sure that his earthly mother, Mary, is provided for. And at this point in their story, um, most scholars believe that, that Mary was a widow. Joseph is not mentioned at all in Jesus' ministry. Um, so she very much would have been in a time before Social Security and retirement accounts. She would have been at the mercy of her children probably to provide for her her food and shelter. And so Jesus, we see this is, is important to him, um, that those physical needs are met for his mother. But there were also emotional needs to consider here as well. You know, any parent that loses a child, is, it's a tra- tremendous tragedy. But the nature in which Jesus was killed, 
and mocked and beaten and, and hung like that publicly um, had to just be horrific. And so Jesus, even in, in the midst of the most intense physical pain you can imagine, looks down and makes sure that, that his mother is provided for. He understands that she's enduring a lot here. And it's just this amazing example that Christ sets for us of the importance of caring for people's material and emotional needs. And later in the book of Timothy, uh, he would echo Jesus' example when he wrote this really challenging verse. 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty powerful. Jesus was a savior, but he was also a son. And he knows that all of us are sons and daughters of someone. And so again, he challenges us and sets this amazing example of care for his family. The fourth statement Jesus makes is is maybe one of the most deep and powerful to reflect on. The fourth statement was this. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this was the pivotal moment of the cross. Because this was the moment in which Jesus, in some miraculous, supernatural way, took on the sin of all humanity. All the sin of all the people that have ever lived and will ever live on his shoulders at once. And there's no way of knowing the weight of what that was like for Christ. For him to bear that. But obviously, it was, it was no small thing for Jesus. But it wasn't just the weight of that sin. It was also this excruciating reality of being torn apart from his father. He's saying, God, why have you forsaken me? He made it very clear in his teaching that, that I and the father am one. Okay? That he is, is one with God. But for this moment, because of the the incredible unholiness and unrighteousness of our sin, God had to turn his back on his son because he couldn't even look at the weight of that sin. And for a brief moment in history, and the only time the father and the son had to be separated. And that felt like abandonment to Jesus. The gospel writers make it clear that, that Jesus was crucified at nine in the morning And then at noon, Mark wrote this, that darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So for three hours, there was just complete darkness over the whole area there. You can imagine how eerie that must have been. I mean, we're making a big deal this summer of like, what, three minutes of solar eclipse, right? And everybody's coming to St. Joe and we're all going to get rich renting our house out, right? Three minutes of darkness. This was three hours of complete darkness. When Jesus was arrested the night before and and hauled before the chief priest, he made this comment in Luke 22, 53. He said, said, listen, every day, this isn't up on the screen, you just have to listen, okay? I saw you guys like, (laughs) every day I was in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me, but this is your hour. When darkness reigns. It's almost like Jesus is kind of saying, all right, have, have your fun for this brief moment of time. This is, this is your dark hour. 
And we've all had those moments in our own lives, haven't we? When it feels like God's kind of abandoned us and darkness is kind of winning the day. And, and sometimes it has to do with our own personal circumstances. We can feel like that, where we're just like, God, God, where are you right now? But we certainly feel it and experience it when we look out on the world, too, and we see war and famine and abuse and crime and hate and injustice and all those things that wreak havoc on society. Jesus knows what it's like to feel abandoned and forsaken. But you and I both know that this, this abandonment, this darkness, this separation was a necessary thing and for our own good. Peter writes about it in 1 Peter 2.24. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so this dark hour had a purpose, right? The fifth statement again reflects the human nature of Christ. He says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And it doesn't get much more human than that, does it? I mean, that's kind of a base emotion and or need, I guess. And the reality is, is that in a physical sense, all of that suffering as he's getting towards the end of his time is starting to kind of catch up with him. And his body's just starting to shut down. And he has lost a lot of fluid, blood, sweat from trying to breathe for six hours like that. And so there is this very physical thirst that probably would have been extremely overwhelming for Christ. But he's thirsting on a spiritual level too. You know, he's thirsting for for love and forgiveness and for justice and for compassion for reunion with his father. And we thirst in life as well. And all of our lives are, are, are fractured with these broken spaces where, where sometimes life and joy can kind of leak out of us. And we can find ourselves in these moments of just despairing and just wanting, <laughs> wanting life in, in a very real way. And it's why depression and anxiety and suicide are rising at shocking levels in our country right now, especially among teens. If you want to be really depressed, <laughs> Google that for a little while and read about the emotional and mental state of our teenagers right now in our country. It's, it's horrible. And Jesus encounters our thirst with this promise in John 7 when he was still alive and moving around and teaching. He said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. You see, the human Jesus understands our thirst. The divine Jesus understands our longing to be truly satisfied. And he tells us, that he is the source, the only source that can satisfy us. And so teenagers and young people, I want you to hear me say this. 
is that when you're searching for satisfaction in this life, Christ is telling you right up front, you are not going to find it in anybody else. There is no other source for life besides him. So any attempt you try to find it in acceptance or achievement or a relationship with a boy or girl or any of that stuff is only going to be temporary. It's never going to completely fill you. And it's going to leave you thirsty again and again and again. And you can either learn that lesson now or like a lot of people in here who maybe are 30, 40, 50 and lived a life of trying to fill themselves up with the things of this world and found that in the end it is empty. You can learn it down the road after you've made a lot more mistakes. He's the only one who can quench our thirst for meaning and purpose in life. The sixth statement begins wrapping up Jesus' time on the cross. He said this in John. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And Jesus is saying that all that he had come to do was accomplished. That he had made a way for there to be salvation, forgiveness, relationship between God and man. That that had been restored and that there was a way for us to reconnect with our Father. And because of what he finished, it means that you and I are never finished or done for. That as somebody mentioned, that there's always hope for us. It's never too late. That just as Jesus came and he completed his mission to do everything that the Father asked him to do, that he wants to finish each one of us and he's committed to that. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. As long as you hang in there with him, he's going to keep finishing you as well and the purposes that he has for your life. The seventh and final statement shows Jesus' last act of complete surrender to his father. It says that Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. In a lot of ways there, he's just kind of looking up to God and saying, God, whatever you want to do with me, I'm open to. I'm continuing to till my very last breath to just kind of surrender my will to yours. And, and, you know, I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, is, is that our posture? Are we that open to what God might want to do with our lives? Some of you might notice that when we worship in here, that there are people at times that raise their hands. And some of you are more comfortable or used to that than others, but sometimes it's just out of adoration or um, sometimes it's, it's because people are just in this posture of surrender and yielding themselves to God and saying, God, whatever you want to do with me, I'm here, I'm open, lead me and I'll follow you. And that's just a, a physical way of communicating that to God. So I hope that this was an, uh, an interesting, beautiful, inspiring, challenging journey through the statements on the cross. I want to encourage you maybe this week of Holy Week to, to take, you know, one of those statements a day and just kind of meditate on those a little bit and kind of see what God might want to say to you each day up until next Sunday of Easter. That would just be a real practical way. Um, but this, again, is not one of those messages that is simple to wrap up and put a pretty bow on and send you away with three things to do to be a better Jesus follower. 
I would imagine that as we went through those that there were one or two that maybe hit you for some reason because of personal circumstances going on in your life in some way. Um, so I wondered if before we leave real quick, if, if a couple of people would be willing to just share like, hey, this is, this is what stood out to me and what I'm going to take away from, from this journey through Christ's last words here on the cross. Anybody have something that really stood out? Yeah, Brent. Yeah. Yeah. He said that just that moment when God turns his back on Jesus so that he would never have to turn his back on us. You know, he never has to do that with us anymore because that sin's been paid for. So that's a great observation. Yeah, Chris? Yeah. I don't know, it just seems like some pretty heavy stuff for me. I can't even fathom. Like if my dad was like, ah, just totally fucked. Like, yeah. Yeah, just it's hard for us to know how to, how, to, how to not separate, but understand the two natures, the dual natures of Christ in that moment and what it must have felt like on the human side of just, just yeah, feeling abandoned, you know? Or even just the human side of looking out in the crowd and not seeing your earthly dad because he was not he was dead. <laughs> and just how hard that is to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which is Tell me what was the what was the point that stood out to you from that? I'm not sure. <laughs> You're not sure. Okay, we re look at that later. Anybody else? Yeah, Haley. Man, you're on a roll today. Oh, the I'm thirsty statement? Yeah, yeah, but there's yeah. nothing that can fill that. Yeah, that's good. Yes? I think it's um, seeing Christ when the man stated Christ and said, Father, I want to see you in heaven. He just had a step of faith. Mm -hmm. The guy's standing there like on his final breath. And he's like, just in the metaphor of like drawing his circle, like Jesus like drew his circle even bigger in his final moment of like feeling just death and sin and everyone around. Yeah, and that's a great analogy and word picture, so thank you for that. He said just Jesus in his final moments just drawing his circle wider <laughs> to encompass more people than, than we would maybe think deserved what they got which was grace and forgiveness when maybe they hadn't earned it. And maybe that's just a challenge for all of us is think about our, our social circles and the way that we encounter people in, in society and people that annoy us or frustrate us or we're just kind of disgusted by their sin and their lifestyle and their choices. Jesus 
this man was not outside of his bounds. <laughs> and I think that that stretches us. That's a great point. So thank you guys. I appreciate the, you guys just listening so well this morning. And um, let's just pray as we head out. Lord, we just thank you. Um, man, in the midst of just life and just being busy and focused on a lot of things that this world throws at us, we just forget, at least I do, <laughs> Just the power of the cross, all that was communicated there, all that was symbolized and accomplished in your surrender um, to a very painful process of dying. And Lord, we all want Easter. We all want resurrection and hope, and just so few of us really want to go through the process that it takes to get there, which is dying to our sinful nature. We want hope in our marriage. We want hope in our relationships or our career, but we're not really willing to take an honest look at, you know, what is it that keeps me from doing that? What is the sin that causes me to stumble and gets in the way of of seeing some resurrection and hope in my life? And we need to see it. We need to acknowledge it um, because we know it's paid for. And we just have to step into that blessing that you've given us to really experience the fullness of what the cross represents for us. And so this week, as we go through Holy Week, Lord, I pray that you just bring us back to the cross each day and maybe just a mental exercise of just closing our eyes and meditating on you and thinking through the things you said, that you might speak something new into our understanding of what it means to be a follower of you, Lord, and that we would maybe um, uh, ignite a new sense of gratitude Um, for what you offer us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we close?